Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 154 for the second half of December 2016. The topic I'm going to talk about today is a mishmash of different pseudoscientific claims about impact craters, three in particular. I study impact craters in my day job. Much of that time is spent literally drawing circles in order to map out craters on many different bodies in the solar system to do lots of different science stuff with them. Because the vast majority of my time is spent really literally staring at a computer screen and tracing out these circles, I have a lot of time to listen to podcasts and radio programs, which is one way that I get ideas for this show. Over my many, many, many hours of listening, Bits and pieces of different people's crazy ideas have been used or have been using impact craters, and I've noted them down as potential podcast episodes. Unfortunately, when I went to do this episode, I couldn't find half of my notes, so I'm only going to be covering three claims today. The first one is going to be quick, the second is going to be a little bit longer, and then the third one is going to be very fast and include today's logical fallacy. And of course... I do have clips for you of people making their weird and crazy claims. First up is a claim that is so weird that I noted it down when I first listened to it in 2012. I'm going to let her make the claim herself because I can't really do it justice, but I do have to give a little bit of context. The claim is made by Rita Louise, who is a naturopathic physician, uh, that's a whole different podcast, who was sharing her research into the genetic origins of humans And her research into this was through various ancient mythologies and cultures. No actual biology or medicine or science, just studying mythology. She thinks that life started out on Mars and then was transplanted to Earth. As justification for why we went from Mars to Earth, this is what she said. And when you look at the timeline on Mars, you find some really amazing things. Mars... uh, formed uh, like 4.5 billion years ago. And As we did, two, yeah. Within 2 million years, there was already blue-green algae on the planet. It was covered with water. And according to scientists, it was the period of time that life was most likely, uh, would most likely be able to form on the planet. But then there was the late uh, bombardment, meteor bombardment, which caused it to lose its magnetic core, and so it lost its gravitational field, which meant it lost its atmosphere. And so the planet became a dead planet. There's a lot of stuff in that clip, but I'm only going to address the impact crater stuff. And to understand the claim, I do need to give two pieces of background. First up is the impact cratering process itself. Impact craters form when a little bit of material from beyond the target body hits the target body with enough energy to excavate a cavity. This is pretty straightforward, and you can use the analogy of just throwing a really heavy weight into sand to see the process, or maybe into mud, or even a rock into a pond is a form of very transient temporary cratering. One place where the simple experiment that you can do yourself breaks down is the velocities involved. The material that strikes a planet or a moon or an asteroid or or whatever is moving really, really, really fast. 
We often can relate to things traveling at, well, maybe say 35 miles per hour or 50 kilometers per hour. That's driving around town speeds assuming that you're not in traffic or at red lights. Instead of traveling that distance per hour, now change it to per second. As in, the distance that your car travels in town in one hour is the distance that a projectile in space will travel in one second. Roughly speaking, of course. It does vary depending on where you are in the solar system because of our primary sponsor of the show, Johannes Kepler, and his second law of planetary motion, where stuff at Mercury's distance from the sun travels at about up to 70 kilometers per second, and stuff out by Pluto is closer to 2 kilometers per second. In comparison, New Horizons travels at about 14 to 15 kilometers per second. Uh, That's a spacecraft that flew by Pluto in 2015. And this speed is similar to the average asteroid speed near Earth. Getting back to how speed breaks things from the simple do-it-yourself analogy, though, when stuff travels that fast, it's called hypervelocity. Meaning, um, besides moving really, really fast, it means that special stuff starts to happen when you have a projectile that impacts a target at hypervelocity. The main thing is that the energy of motion is much, much stronger than the strength of the projectile and the strength of the target. Uh, In contrast, if you were to throw a rock into uh, sand, the strength of the rock is going to very much outweigh the strength that you're actually throwing it into the sand, and the sand is not going to vaporize, and the target, or the projectile, the rock, is not going to vaporize either. But in a hypervelocity situation, they can both act not only like a fluid, but they can simply vaporize. This creates a tremendous explosion as all of that energy is converted into the cratering process. Uh, This is how a projectile that's maybe 50 meters or 150 feet across can form a crater that's a kilometer, 0.6 miles across, and kill everything within a few miles in under a minute on Earth uh, because of the airburst and various other things. This also means that very little of the initial projectile is going to survive, and that much of the properties of that projectile will be lost, like its density, uh, the material that it's made of, and even the impact angle itself. All that really matters is going to be that energy. Unless the projectile hits the target at less than 5 to 10 degrees relative to the surface, you're going to get an almost perfect circle in an idealized target. I say idealized target because uh, a good counterexample is Meteor Crater in northern Arizona. It's that 50-meter projectile formed a 1-kilometer crater, but it's not a circle. It actually looks kind of squarish, and that's because there were pre-existing faults in the Earth's surface, and those helped guide the formation of the crater. With that said, you only get a crater that looks like an obvious ellipse if the projectile hits at almost that glancing blow angle. Otherwise, the hypervelocity impact and subsequent explosion is going to be really close to axisymmetric, and so you're not going to get an elliptical crater. This is why when you look at, say, the moon, most craters look like circles, even though the average impact angle is going to be about 45 degrees. The second way that the do-it-yourself analogy breaks down is how big these suckers can get. Impact craters scale in size from micrometers to thousands of kilometers across. 
That's a huge range of scale, and it's seriously hard for any of us to wrap our heads around what happens when a projectile that's, say, tens of kilometers or miles, it really doesn't matter at that point, across, hits a planetary body at a hypervelocity, and what's going to happen next. It's especially hard to understand what happens when the projectile is within, say, a factor of maybe uh, 10 of the size of the target. So say uh, in the moon is, what, about 1,739 kilometers across uh, in radius? So let's say a projectile that's 100 kilometers hits that target. That's really hard for us to imagine. And with that in mind, tuck it aside. The next piece of background information is about the late heavy bombardment, which may or may not have happened. That's actually a very active area of research right now. From the standard model of solar system formation, lots of material comes together to form bigger objects, and this process continues as objects continue to grow. Eventually you get a planet, and uh, you still have lots of potentially large leftovers from planet formation. Those leftovers keep hitting planets and the moons, and it's what we call the uh, early bombardment or late-stage accretion. It is really just stuff still coming together, but instead of pea-sized bits of material that sort of glob onto each other, we're talking about mountain-to-moon-sized pieces of material smashing into each other. Uh, This is, of course, still a gross oversimplification, but it's the basic idea. Most real science models of solar system formation and evolution then have the impact rate quickly slowing down as these leftovers are removed, either by hitting other objects that we still have, like Earth or the Moon or Jupiter, or being thrown out of the solar system in the same way that we use planets today to give our spacecraft gravitational boosts to get to higher speeds. But... Some models have something happening sometime around 3.8 to 4.2 billion years ago, or about 300 to 700 million years after the planets and other stuff formed. And when I say this time period, some models say that it actually took this entire time period, and some models say that it was a very fast spike, maybe tens of millions of years long, that happened at some point in that time period. There was evidence for this in samples from the Apollo missions, but reinterpretations of those with modern techniques, and actually gathering new data with modern techniques, are now suggesting that the evidence that was found during Apollo era isn't actually there. But there's also some dynamic evidence for this, which I'm going to hopefully talk about in a later episode with an interview with one of the guys who wrote the original paper on this. Anyway, what people think and some people don't think, happened during this time period was that there was a very large spike in the impact crater rate in the inner solar system due to uh, maybe a couple of different causes or perhaps just due to one cause. Again, the jury is still out on what the cause is, even if it did or didn't happen. But what's important for this episode is that if that happened, and even if it didn't happen, uh, the phenomenon that maybe happened is called the late heavy bombardment. Late, because it was around half a billion years after solar system formation, and heavy bombardment because a consequence of whatever may or may not have caused this was that we got a huge spike in the impact rate, including of big objects. If this happened, it's when we think most of the large basins on the moon formed, many of which on the near side are filled with dark lavas, which you can see with the unaided eye from Earth. 
these are impactors which were tens of kilometers or miles across, up to maybe over a hundred. This would also have been a reset time for Earth, pretty much sterilizing the surface if life had already gained a foothold, because so many large impacts in such a brief time would probably have heated the surface too much to support life. And so, with those two pieces of background, let's get back to the claim, and I realize at this point that this first claim is not as fast as I thought it would be. But what Rita basically said is that the late heavy bombardment, when it happened on Mars, caused Mars to lose its, quote, magnetic core, whatever that means, uh, which caused it to lose its gravity, which meant that it lost its atmosphere, which meant that life had to come to Earth. So step one is the bombardment. Step two is the loss of the magnetic core. Step three is that it loses gravity. And step four is that it lost its atmosphere. If she had just started with step two and used that to go directly to step four, she'd basically be correct. We think that when Mars lost its inherent magnetic field, it no longer could protect its atmosphere from most of the sun's solar wind. Uh, The sun's solar wind are mostly charged particles that stream out from the sun. Each molecule from the sun that then hits a molecule of Mars' atmosphere can give it energy. And when it can give it enough energy to escape Mars' gravity, well, that's how we think that Mars lost its atmosphere over the uh, last couple billion years, or at least most of its atmosphere. But step one does not cause step two, and step three never happened. Uh, I'm not quite sure how you lose gravity. Um, Step three is Mars still has gravity. Gravity has absolutely nothing to do with a magnetic field, and gravity is an inherent property of matter, period. As for step one, this is why I gave you the background information. The late heavy bombardment, or LHB for short, must have happened on Mars if it happened on Earth's moon and at Earth. It would have created many large craters on Mars. But those large craters don't affect the core of the planet. I have a friend from grad school who's actually gone on to do most of the simulations that look at this kind of thing. And they show that unless you're making craters that are literally thousands of kilometers across on Mars, it's not going to affect the core, and therefore it's not going to affect the magnetic field. On Mars, we have two known craters, maybe three, that are thousands, plural, of kilometers across. The possible one dates back to almost the planet's formation, and we know that Mars had a magnetic field after that. The other dates to maybe about 4.3 billion years ago, and it's magnetized inside of the crater, so we know that the planet had a magnetic field after that impact. The other one is not magnetized, but it's also the smallest of the three, and it's the youngest. So we could say that maybe that crater formation killed the magnetic field, except that if it would have, then the other two, which are larger, should have. So instead, we say that this particular crater formed after the magnetic field died. And I should note that I'm intimately familiar with this particular research because a pair of papers came out in 2013 on the magnetization of these large impact basins and when these impact basins formed. One of them I was first author on, and the other one I co-wrote. So there's no evidence that these big basins affected the magnetic field in the way that Rita claimed. And I left out an important part. 
What the real science research shows is not that the giant impacts would kill the magnetic field, but that they would restart the magnetic field. Rita is claiming the exact opposite. Planetary magnetic fields are caused by liquid iron and nickel moving around near the core and generating the field due to a pair of fundamental theories in electromagnetism that I'm not going to get into. We think that planetary magnetic fields die because the planet simply cools down and the liquid iron and nickel simply solidifies and can no longer flow to produce the field. Hence, a bunch of impact energy delivered to the core could keep it liquid and therefore help the magnetic field, either prolong it or restart it. And so, that's the real science of what's going on here. Not only is Rita Louise wrong, but the real science pretty much says the opposite of what she claimed. The second claim I want to talk about in this episode has to do with Earth around 12,000 years ago. Specifically, the Younger Dryas period, about 12,900 to 11,700 years ago. Many different, quote-unquote, alternative, or alt, in the parlance of the day, uh, so many different alt people have made various claims that all center around this period, but one of the common causes that they like to point to is some sort of impact event. This is especially promoted by people who claim things like ancient advanced civilizations that were lost, and they like to point to this period as when that loss happened. By way of background into the period itself, we had been coming out of the last glacial maximum that had started around about 24,000 years ago and lasted until around 18 to 17,000 years ago. Earth was slowly warming back up, but sometime around 12,900 years ago, over the course of just a few decades, Earth cooled by about 2 to 4 degrees centigrade or 4 to 13 degrees Fahrenheit, on average, which caused glaciers to advance back and the climate to be generally drier. This period only lasted about 1,200 years, and then Earth warmed back up and we've been continuing to warm since. With that in mind, I'm planning at least a four-part series on global climate change, hopefully sometime in 2017, so stay tuned for more on that. With that background in mind, I'm going to play you some clips from Graham Hancock. Uh, some of you who listen to other shows may have heard of him. For those who haven't, he's made his name in arguing for alternative history, where there were many advanced civilizations in the past, and we've lost all of that knowledge to history. His latest book, published in 2015, was a follow-up to his much more famous book from 1995, Fingerprints of the Gods. In 2015, his book was Magicians of the Gods. He's one of the main promoters of the idea that the three main pyramids in Egypt align with the belt stars of Orion. Uh, see episode 34 for more on that. His 2015 book had the same basic thesis, but he updated it to focus on the Younger Dryas period. He thinks that not only the start, but also the stop of it was caused by a gajillion small fragments from a comet both times. I think NASA in particular, um, which has, you know, is charged with the responsibility and, and is the recipient of large amounts of public money, is charged with the responsibility of understanding our cosmic environment. NASA um, is very... Uh, misleading on the issue of the dangers that surround us in our cosmic environment. Um, it gives the impression, um, you know, that, that there is no real danger to the Earth from comets or asteroids, and that if there is a danger, it's millions or hundreds of millions of 
years away. Um, and this is completely incorrect. We actually live in a very hazardous cosmic environment and a great many responsible astronomers are drawing attention to this and drawing attention in particular to what's called the the torrid meteor stream which is this huge meteor stream 30 million kilometers wide that is the debris trail of the comet that hit us not once but twice 12,800 years ago 11,600 years ago and as a matter of fact a bit of that debris trail of that comet hit the Earth much more recently in on the 30th of June, 1908, the so-called Tunguska event. There are two things to say about this clip. First, it's a conspiracy about NASA. It's pretty much the exact opposite of what he says. NASA, as a policy, has been maintaining for years, if not decades, that we are going to be hit by an asteroid or comet, and that the only way to know when is to fund them to continue to do searches for potential impactors. But NASA gets, at this point in time, less than 0.5% of the U.S. annual federal budget, and asteroid searches get cut just as everything else gets cut. Second, there is, in reality, absolutely no evidence that what Graham Hancock said here is true about the Torrids. I'm going to continue that line of thought after I play this next clip, which comes after the host asked about whether there was evidence for his claims from impact craters. Because obviously, if you're getting hit by a comet or an asteroid, you should expect there to be a crater as a result. The impacts, the primary impacts, were in areas that don't leave massive craters, and I'll explain this. However, craters are now being found. The primary impacts 12,800 years ago were on the North American ice cap. And the North, this was the Ice Age 12,800 years ago, and the North American ice cap was still a couple of miles deep at that time. It had thinned out over the previous 20,000 years or so, but it was still a couple of miles deep. And you have at least four objects in the range of half a mile to a mile in diameter coming in at 60,000 to 70,000 miles an hour and impacting the ice cap. The craters are excavated in the deep ice. They cause a massive melting of the ice cap and the craters effectively vanish. They're, they're, they're transient. They're, not, they're, 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 they're no longer in the ground. But what you get is shock effects under the ice and those shock effects now that all of the ice has gone uh, as, as is the case today can be measured on the ground and in areas just outside the ice cap in the northeast of north america four distinct craters have now emerged that date back exactly to 12,800 years ago so so the question of of craters is in the process of being answered by the team of more than 30 scientists who are working on this problem with that out of the way, I had a thought to continue from before this clip, and that's about the Torrids. The Torrid meteor shower is an annual meteor shower that we see on Earth that tends to peak around October 10th and November 12th. It occurs no earlier than September 10th and no later than December 10th. It's called the Torrids because if you trace the paths of the meteors across the sky, they all converge in the direction of the constellation Taurus, which is called the Radiant. The Torrids share an orbit around the Sun with the comet Enki. Some astronomers think that both Enki and the Torrids are the result of a breakup of a larger comet. By looking at how spread out the particles are in their orbit, we can trace this breakup to about 20 to 30,000 years ago. So that could fit with what Graham is saying, in part. 
except that there isn't actually any evidence for it. I know that he tells what sounds like a convincing story, but it's really mostly baseless despite the evidence that he claims, especially for the Taurids being responsible. First off, there's absolutely no way that we can say what month something happened 12,800 years ago. So even if an impact caused the younger Dryas, we can't tie it to the Torrids. Second, the Tunguska impact happened on June 30th of 1908. That's well outside the range for when we can get the Torrids. So even the one event where we do have a date, it simply can't work with his model. Third, he says that we have four distinct craters that date exactly to 12,800 years ago. That's simply wrong. I'm not necessarily accusing him of lying, uh, but perhaps making things up, or quoting things from other people who are making things up and don't publish their stuff in the literature. There are many, many lists that exist online that aggregate all known impact craters on Earth, along with their locations, sizes, and estimated ages. I could find absolutely none that date to 12,800 years ago, much less find four, and not even around the world, let alone North America. What Graham might be referring to are what are known as the Carolina Bays. For that, we get into some statements made by many, many different people. But in particular, I'm going to get into clips made by Robert Felix, or play you clips that are uh, quoting or having Robert Felix uh, talk about them. Robert is not an alternative history person. He's an alternative reality person. He believes that Earth is not currently warming. He thinks that it's currently getting colder. He was frequently interviewed by George Norrie on Coast to Coast AM as a first-hour guest, and because of his frequency, they tended to talk about random things not necessarily related to global cooling. The Carolina Bays were one of those things back in 2010. As set up for this clip that comes after a commercial break, just before the commercial break, he was talking about Earth's magnetic field reversing at the start of the Younger Dryas, which actually didn't happen. But he says it did, and he says that when that happened, which it didn't, you get giant explosions in the sky that cause holes in the ground. The other part was, was those holes, holes in the ground, the Carolina Bays, that that you know, I write about those in the book, and, and I've talked about them, and now we're finding Carolina Bays in Australia. I've had readers that have sent me photos that are, you know, screenshots from Google Earth where you can see these huge Carolina Bays. If if somebody has, if you have Google Earth and you go, for instance, to, to Barrow, Alaska, and then just scroll down just a little tiny bit south of Barrow, you will see these oval shapes that are these holes that were blasted into the ground that are far bigger than the, than the city of Barrow itself. And there's, it looks like there's hundreds of them there, just in a small area. In the United States, there are more than two million of these Carolina Bays. They, some of them are only the size of an acre, but some of them are as much as six miles across. Now, it used to be that scientists thought that they're not scientists, but just regular people. They they look like swamps from the ground. Yeah. Uh, but when the airplane was invented and people were able to fly over, they realized that all of these oval, oval swamps are 
are all oriented in the same direction, north and south, and that some of them actually overlap each other. And, and even though they may be six miles across, they're only about 50 feet or less deep. So they're not very deep. And then scientists have dated them, and they date to the Gothenburg magnetic reversal of 12,000 years ago. So these holes, whatever caused them, were, were blasted into the ground at a magnetic reversal. After that clip and the transition from discussing Hancock, the obvious question is, what are Carolina Bays? To be honest, I had never heard of them until listening to these folks, and they're pretty neat. Carolina Bays are the name for more than 500,000 elliptical depressions along the eastern coast of mostly the United States, although the vast majority are concentrated in the Carolinas. They are very regular in shape, span in size from a few hundred meters to a few kilometers in their long axes, and are all generally oriented in a northwest-southeast direction for their long axes. This orientation changes to be more west-east as you go northward, and the very, very, very rough convergence is in southeastern Indiana and northwestern Ohio of all of these long axes. But this is approximate, and many vary by several degrees over just a small area. And so the next question is, what formed them? This is highly debated. Clearly, Robert Felix is claiming that they were caused by an extraplanetary impactor, either swarm or something that broke up in the atmosphere and created individual craters. And he thinks that this happened about 12,000 years ago to explain the Younger Dryas. It's possible that this is what Graham Hancock was also referring to, and many, many other alternative folks who make this claim as well. But there are problems with this, and I say that as a person who sees a circular feature on a planet and tends to think it's a crater first and ask questions later. But geologic context matters, and the standard things that we've learned about cratering throughout the solar system still apply, as do the methods of dating them. First off, the dating. Many different techniques have been used to date these features. To give you the answer first, none of them come close to 12,800 years ago. Studying pollen trapped in the rims of these features gives ages around 75,000 to 134,000 years ago. Using principles of stratigraphy, uh, see episodes 137 for more on that, we get ages of around 27,200 to 36,000 years old. Using optically stimulated luminescence dating, we get 80,000 to 100,000 years old. And using radiocarbon dating, again, of material trapped within the rims as well as core samples, we get ages of some of them as young as 440 years, but most of them more than 14,000 years, with some of them dating to about 27,700 years old. So in other words, while these different methods tend to disagree, they were mostly sampling different bays, and so they have a range of ages, anywhere from maybe 500 years ago for some, but most of them at least 27,000 years old and potentially more than 100,000 years old. Note that nowhere in there did I say that they were all 12,800 years old, 12,000 years old, nor 11,600 years old. So, even if they are impact craters, they are not the age required and claimed by various alternative people. 
there are reasons to suspect that they are not impact craters. Well, one in particular which I'm going to discuss here, and that's their shape. I've studied a lot of impact craters, and yes, this is an argument from authority. I've traced the rims of more than 2.6 million craters across the solar system, cataloging literally more than anyone else has manually done ever. Never have I seen so many regularly elliptical-shaped craters on any planetary surface. Now granted, I have never really studied Earth impact craters, and one could argue that Earth would be different than an airless body like the Moon or a nearly airless body like Mars. But that works both ways. Earth has an atmosphere, and it has a very active set of surface modification processes. Even if all of these, maybe craters, date to 12,800 years ago, which they don't, but if they did, that's 12,800 years of active erosion that should have modified them. And these aren't in places that get little erosion. These features are in wetlands, and the alternative researchers usually have them forming from air blasts that hit in glaciers that are miles thick and then would retreat and melt, further modifying these features. To put it succinctly, they're just too regular at this point in time, and in my opinion, that means that they are not impact craters that formed 12,800 years ago. Also, we don't need an impact event to explain them. Plenty of geological processes that happened on Earth can explain these, primarily with periodic local wind patterns and lake formation. The orientation of these bays are consistent with wind patterns that were present during the previous, previous glaciation, the Wisconsin glacial episode which occurred around 150,000 to 50,000 years ago, and so the non-impact model can explain even the seemingly weird and regular orientation of these features. As for the Younger Dryas period itself, there are mainstream researchers who think that it may have been caused by an impact event. Evidence for this comes from concentrations of material often attributed to terrestrial impact events and layers of rock that date to roughly 12,800 years ago, such as concentrations of platinum, nanodiamonds, and carbon. However, this is not conclusive, and those who study the Younger Dryas do not have a consensus yet. Criticisms of the impact idea come from claims of incorrect dating of the layers and lack other evidence of events that one would expect, such as a decline in the population of native populations in North America that could be linked to that time. We simply don't see it. In terms of the dating, when other researchers went back to the sites that people had claimed to show these increases in material linked to an impact, they found that very few, if any, of them actually dated to the Younger Dryas. These papers are as recent as 2014 and 2015, so as I said, there is still an active area of research in this area. The perhaps mainstream explanation for the Younger Dryas is changes in ocean currents, specifically the North Atlantic conveyor current, which circulates warm waters from the equator northward. This could have been disrupted by an influx of fresh water due to, in part, us coming out of the previous ice age. As the glaciers melted and deposited their water into the ocean, this could have disrupted the important ocean currents that help regulate temperature on our planet. Another probably less mainstream idea is that the jet stream changed due to changing topography as miles of ice melted, and this changing of the jet stream also disrupted that important temperature regulator. 
Finally, what about that Gothenburg magnetic reversal that Robert talked about? Longtime listeners may remember my episode about a magnetic pole flip not happening in 2012, and I stated in that episode that the last pole flip was around 780,000 years ago, not 12,800. But there have been what are called geomagnetic excursions since that time. A magnetic excursion is when Earth's magnetic field, the global field, stays intact, but it may lessen somewhat, and the pole may migrate a significant amount, and in some areas of the planet, the polarity of that field may change orientations. But after this excursion, which can last a few hundred to a few thousand years, it goes back to the way it was. There was a geomagnetic excursion within a thousand years of the start of the Younger Dryas period. But that can't cause it, and it certainly can't cause a comet impact like what Robert is saying. A comet doesn't care about a planet's magnetic field. Not only is a comet not magnetically charged, but a comet is moving way too fast to have the field do much of anything, especially to prevent it from hitting a planet. So Robert is pretty much wrong on every count. For a mid-episode, but not quite final part wrap-up then, we have a few cases of crater-based claims that are more based on fancy than in sound science. It doesn't matter how sincere nor genuine the claimant may sound, that doesn't mean they're correct. It also shows that even some of the most basic claims that they make that are then used to support their ideas may not be correct in and of themselves. You really have to examine each and every part of what someone says to see if it's correct. Or, to put it a different way, I just started to rewatch The X-Files, for I was a child of the 90s but never actually made it through the whole series. I just watched an episode where Agent Scully had this apt quote, The truth is out there, but so are lies. With that in mind, Reports emerged about two weeks ago as I record this, in mid-December of 2016, that NASA claims an asteroid collision is going to kill us all imminently. At least, those were the headlines at the time. As I write and record this episode two weeks later, at the end of December, those headlines have been changed to things like, NASA scientist warns we are not prepared for surprise asteroid or comet impact. This is going from, instead of NASA saying, the big one is going to hit us tomorrow, we're just unprepared. It's, of course, important to note that this is in marked contrast with what Graham Hancock claimed that NASA says everything is rosy for the next several million years. That gratuitous note aside, what was going on is that there was a meeting of the American Geophysical Union that week, and a scientist who happened to be employed by NASA gave a talk that the news media blew way out of proportion and then appears to have backpedaled on. The researcher was Joseph Nuth, who made a point in his talk to say that at this point in time, we don't have any viable method to deflect an asteroid that could cause a planet-wide or even really a city-wide destructive event. What was taken out of proportion was his statement that catastrophic impacts are rare, quote, but on the other hand, they are the extinction-level events like dinosaur killers. They're 50 to 60 million years apart, essentially. You could say, of course, we're due, but it's a random course at that point. So what the news media does is clickbait headlines to say that a NASA scientist says we're overdue for a dinosaur-killing extinction-level impact on the planet. 
This gets to what I said I'd talk about in the last episode, uh, in this episode, the misuse of statistics, specifically the gambler's fallacy. The gambler's fallacy can be most easily thought of with a coin toss. If I toss a coin one time, the chances of it being heads is 50%. Let's say that it comes up tails. If I toss a coin a second time, the chance of it being heads is still 50%. But under the gambler's fallacy, one would say that because it came up tails before, the odds are not 50%. In this case, the odds are going to be 75% or a 3 in 4 chance of it coming up heads because it has to even out in the long run, right? But let's say that it comes up tails again. Well, on the third flip under the gambler's fallacy, we'd think that this time it must have a 7 in 8 chance of coming up heads, even though in reality it's still just the same chance of being heads or tails because each flip is independent. Same thing on the roulette wheel. Let's say that you get a bunch of reds in a row. So you think, well, next time it has to be black in order to even things out. But in reality, it's still just roughly a 50-50 chance each time. As another example, I remember a sitcom about from a decade ago, I think it was called The War at Home, where a man went to the doctor to get a vasectomy. Being a stereotypical American male at that point in time, he wasn't that happy about it, and he was trying to get reassurance from the doctor that it would be fine and nothing could go wrong. He asked the doctor what his chances were of something going wrong, and the doctor said about 1 in 5,000, but not to worry that none of his patients have ever had complications. He asked how many the doctor had done, and the doctor responded, oh, almost 5,000. The man got up and walked out. That's the gambler's fallacy because he incorrectly thought that if his chances were 1 in 5,000 and the doctor had done 4,999 without a problem, then that meant that by the 5,000th, there would be a problem. And because he was number 5,000, he would be the one with complications. The exact same thing applies here with asteroid impacts. Let's say that the numbers are correct, and Earth faces an impact event of a 10-mile-wide asteroid roughly every 50 million years. But we haven't had one in 65 million years. It's the exact same gambler's fallacy way of thinking to say that we're overdue for a hit. The odds of getting hit any one year are exactly the same as the previous, about 1 in 50 million. It's only when we look at the very, very long timescales, like in this case a few billion with a B years, that we can say that there are this many hits in that amount of time, and so on the average it's one hit every 50 million year time period. So that's the story behind these recent claims that you may have heard about, or if you're listening to this in the far future, yes, I'm talking to that listener who just picked up the show in 2018 and has been binge listening to me for 20 hours straight, then you know what's going on with this kind of claim. Two additional short segments for this episode. First off is a correction to the last episode's topic on radiation. I was sent a small correction in the comments on the podcast website by Raviv in Israel, who pointed out that I had misread the Uranium Decay series. After Uranium decays through a few steps to radon, which is a gas, it's radon-222. Radon-222 has a half-life of 3.8 
days. I read the line for Radon 218, which has a half-life of 35 milliseconds. A little bit of a mismatch there. That means that the Radon gas has plenty of time to seep through your granite countertop for you to inhale. But again, it's a rock, so not everything is going to make it out. There was also some discussion on the blog post for the episode on whether you should seal your countertops. Chris pointed out that a friend of his was a nuclear engineer and said that unless you sleep on your countertops, basic ventilation in most houses is going to dissipate radon gas, that that gas is really only going to start to be an issue in not well-ventilated areas. He also said that he got granite precisely because it was not something that needed to be sealed, as opposed to something like marble. However, I pointed out that you may not just want to seal it to try to prevent radon gas escape, but instead to prevent discoloration. If you have a light color granite, and you have stuff like appliances which stay on the same place on your counter like a toaster oven or a fruit bowl, repeated cleaning over areas that aren't covered can slightly alter the color, as can spills of colored liquids like a pizza grease or red wine. Granite is a naturally moisture-resistant rock, but the keyword here is resistant, not proof. The second short segment for this episode is announcements. Uh, for the end of the year of 2016, I do want to give a big thank you to all of you who are listeners of the show, which I now guesstimate is somewhere around four to 5,000 people. Thanks also for sticking by while I was in hiatus and for dealing with the irregular release schedule. Specifically, I do want to thank new people who have taken a few seconds to rate and one minute or more to review the podcast on your portal of choice. In particular, Phil S., who is the single reviewer on Stitcher. Also on iTunes in the U.S. store, thanks to Tartu85, and in the Canadian's iTunes store, Patev and Ultralocreg. With that finished, thanks for listening, and ta-ta till next year. That wraps up this topic for the 154th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page of the podcast, or you can tweet me at pseudoastro or at drastrostew, Dr. Astro Stu, uh, if you want my personal Twitter. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. And also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then tell friends, and, using family, tell a couple random people that you may never meet in real life. <laughs>